From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. This person's an airline pilot, so they're gone quite a bit. Paul Jareffi is a letter carrier in Fort Lauderdale. He's been doing the same route on and off for 15 years. This house next door here, one of the original Miami Dolphins lives there from the 1966 team. So this guy here just passed away about a year ago. He was a retired mail carrier. He was a, he was a really nice old guy. Hey. What's going on? Well, we're just talking about your father. It's not just that the mailman knows a little bit about every person in the neighborhood. The mailman also talks to people. Who else in your neighborhood has talked to as many of your neighbors? And because of all that, letter carriers just get into situations. One day, Paul was driving in his mail truck, and he saw these two guys on the sidewalk in front of an office building near the entrance to the parking lot. And they were punching each other and fighting and wrestling. And as I'm coming closer, I noticed some people standing there watching. One guy, I remember, clearly had his arms folded. And I'm thinking, okay, they must be filming a movie. Sometimes they film movies in the area. And uh, that was my initial thought. Well, I kind of recognized this guy from delivering his mail occasionally. Uh, He owned a pizza place uh, there. Mm -hmm. So as I got closer, he saw the mail truck. And he, he started waving his hand back and forth for me to stop. So I slowed down. And and he had this guy, you know, by the pants with one arm and he put his, you know, hand to his ear to like for me to call for help. And he's saying, help, help. So Paul pulls over and he calls 911 when he notices that the pizza shop owner must have been stabbed. There were these huge circles of blood on his clothes. The two guys are still tussling on the ground. So in the midst of this, what really struck me as odd is a person that worked at the office building is pulling into the parking lot. These two people are fighting, you know, guys saying, let me go, let me go, leave me alone. And she very carefully steers around them, goes into the parking lot, parks her car, gets out, looks back for a second, goes into the office building like, well, I've, you know, I've got work to do or something. So... I heard the sirens coming. I'm pleading with the dispatcher, hurry, hurry. Then the police came, and the officer got out and cuffed the guy right away. And ironically, the the guy that had been stabbed ran. He ran away back to his restaurant because he was worried that he had left the door unlocked. So they had to catch him and sit him down until the ambulance got there. Paul found out later that what had happened was the pizza shop owner had fired the younger guy, told him to get out. The guy responded by stabbing the shop owner five times. But uh, when he tried to get away, the shop owner then chased the guy out of the shop and maybe 50 yards to the back of the parking lot, which is where he caught him and where Paul first saw them. Paul was credited with saving the shop owner's life, though he went back to the building after all this happened, looking to talk to anybody else who'd been there and seen it because he really did not understand. What struck me really odd about the whole situation uh, was that so many people stood there and did nothing. And uh, I talked to one of the guys later that was a maintenance man in the building. I said, you know, how could you, you just stood there? And he goes, well, I didn't, I don't know what was going on. I didn't know who did what to who. I didn't want to get involved. And that's what the gentleman said. You know, people drove by. They, they were standing there and nobody helped me until the mailman came by.
National Association of Letter Carriers named Paul one of its Heroes of the Year in 2008 for this. Others who were named that year, a postal carrier in Cedar Rapids who crawled inside a partially submerged car and rescued the driver, a carrier in New York who alerted authorities to what became a major identity theft case after noticing tons of credit card mail in the name of an 85-year-old woman who'd been in a nursing home for months. It's so common for letter carriers to stumble onto something during their route and perform a good deed that these incidents are a regular feature of the Letter Carrier Association's monthly magazine. These postal workers, they see what is happening around them, and they feel responsible. Versus the rest of us, who are more like the people standing on the sidewalk. And today's show is about the tension between those two different ways of reacting to trouble. Which kind of person do we want to be? I mean, really, not pretending. Really. Our show today in four acts. Four acts where there are decent reasons for people to step in and help, and even better reasons not to. Stay with us. Act one, wary home companions. We got the idea for today's program when we heard about this woman named Emily Feldman. Emily Feldman lived on the same block in the same house for 40 years before she decided to turn to her neighbors for help. And the way that she turned to her neighbors for help raises the question, just how much can we reasonably expect from our neighbors? Some uh, background. Emily lives in a small middle-class suburb called Fairlawn, New Jersey. Her son, Scott, has autism. He's 39. Because he's 39, this has put Emily into a situation that a lot of parents like her get into. She's a widow. And though she is a robust 67 years old, she is getting older. And so she needs to think about what is going to happen to Scott. Who's going to look after him when she's gone? The solution she came up with to that problem is ambitious and it is going to be really, really difficult to pull off. Ruth Paddleworth tells the story. Emily's plan actually has two parts and one of them is a real long shot. She's trying to recruit volunteers from all over Fairlawn. Neighbors, strangers, anyone who's willing to sign up to be Scott's friend, to serve collectively as Scott's surrogate mom after Emily herself is gone. But first she had to lay the foundation She'd already made sure Scott knew how to drive and cook and shop for his own food. But at 38, he was still living at home. So she bought Scott a house, basically so he could have a trial run at living on his own. I wanted to be there for the mistakes because I felt that by the time, you know, something happens to me, he, he would know that he's fine. I mean, I'm here. I can make sure it's going right and, you know, make those corrections that nobody will have that that, quote, burden. I don't want anyone to have that responsibility. So this way, I'll, I'll see it. Emily couldn't have a better vantage point. Scott's house is smack across the street from hers. It's a cute Cape Cod with essentially the same floor plan as the house where he grew up, except this one's his. On the summer day when Scott gave me a tour of his new place, he'd lived there only a few days. This is the football pillow I, I got from Walgreens for myself. And this ladybug pillow I got from Bed Bath & Beyond. I was going to use it for my bedroom, but it looks better on this, this sofa here. So when I the house became available last spring, after the previous owner died. Emily's a school teacher on a limited budget, but she snagged a 1% mortgage for Scott through a state program for disabled adults. He makes the payments with his Social Security income. The house is very tidy, but the setup is kind of strange. It looks like what a 10-year-old boy might come up with if he had the chance to live on his own. 
There's a dolphin nightlight in the bedroom, a list on the wall of U.S. presidents' birthdays and birthplaces that he got off the Internet, and tons of Disney DVDs and stuffed animals throughout the house. In the kitchen, Scott's taped hooks on the outside of each cabinet door and then hung a cooking utensil on each one. It's practical, but it looks a bit surreal, as if the ladles and spatulas simply floated out of the drawers and got stuck on their way to the ceiling. It's easier for me to know what's there when I need it, and I don't have to mix it up in the drawers. Not surprisingly, Scott's had a few mishaps since he moved in. Early on, he ripped out the metal tracking for all the closet doors because he didn't know what they were for, and then dumped them at the recycling depot. And last month, he strung an extension cord across the living room floor, then threw a blanket over it to cover it up. It took a while for Emily to convince him what a bad idea it was, and that he should just tuck it under the carpet. It's as if now that Scott's in his own place, every day is a dress rehearsal for Emily's death. Another day where she has a glimpse of how Scott will live without her. Emily thought that once Scott got into his own house, the hard part would be over. But Scott has a tendency to isolate himself, and Emily worries the house gives him the perfect cave to disappear into. She's afraid that once she's gone, he'll withdraw, spend days without talking with anyone, and wind up feeling even more depressed, which he's done in the past. So Emily wants to recruit people to check in on him, help him solve problems, take him out for a game of ping pong. She could use state funds to hire a caretaker or place him in a group home. But Scott's always hated following someone else's rules, so much so that he used to hurl the TV and yank the toilet seats off their hinges when he felt boxed in. I don't like people telling me what to do. It's like people just like to steal my rights by uh, annoying me with commands and threats. Emily spent the whole summer working diligently for Scott, trying to find volunteers who could create his safety net for after she's gone. She wants volunteers instead of paid helpers, not just because of the expense, but because she believes volunteers will be devoted to Scott, not a paycheck. She's not expecting anyone to be his mom, but she is hoping that if enough people step forward, Scott will be okay. By the time I'm not here, I want to know that people are there for him in some way. And they don't have to do the work. It's just look in, and if you see something's not right, You know, there were other people to call. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to spend any money. You know, it's just being there, you know? I can't plan out everything. I'm not stupid. But what I can plan out, I want to. All right, I I made this... um, this flyer to put up in places with, if you notice, the letters are very big. Big Brother Volunteer Wanted. And then, um, high-functioning young man needs a friend to accompany him to movies or bowling, the recreation center. A week earlier, Emily had stopped in at Benny's Luncheonette, the diner around the corner from where she and Scott live. She asked if she could post a flyer saying, Autistic Man Wants Friends. The owner thought the autism reference might scare people off. So today, Emily comes back with her new version and tapes it to the door. She spends the next several hours working her way through town with a grocery bag full of flyers. She heads into the police station. Um, is there somebody that I could speak with? It's not a, um, it's not a dangerous matter. I was wondering if they have, like, a Big Brother organization or... 
Emily makes her pitch through a thick layer of glass, leaning in to be sure the cop on the other side can hear her. But I kind of was thinking, even if they don't have an organization, would there be any policemen, young or old or whatever, who would want to be a, a sort of a friend, a big brother, um, look in on him, you know? I, I, nothing's coming to my head right now as far as, like, a referral for you. The dispatcher gives Emily the number for the community policing officer. It's not particularly promising, but Emily is undeterred. Next up, the town senior center. There, she spins things differently, to play up what Scott has to offer, not just what he needs. She trots out every possible lure she can think of. She tells the director that Scott likes old people. He admires them because he thinks they're older and they know more, more about history. And they would, they're very into presidents, and he, they were born at a time when they were the presidents that he never knew. So it, to me, it felt like it could do something nice for a person who maybe lost their wife or, has, you know, who's alone, who's sitting here, and now they could have somebody who maybe they don't drive and maybe they need someone to pick up a quart of milk. He would do things like that, you know what I mean? And now he has a house. They could come over and he could teach them some things. Okay. So he's good with the computer and stuff. Great. I'll post this. I worried that the director was just sending her flyer to bulletin board purgatory. She could have offered to announce Emily's proposal during the daily lunch program or the all-day bingo games. Next, Emily heads to the mayor's office. She's been at this for hours, and she's clearly getting frazzled. Um, I wanted to ask, I've been really trying for the longest time, and I have been trying in the hardest way possible to get, like, volunteers and people who would stop in on him. The two clerks behind the counter seem uncomfortable, maybe a bit embarrassed about how blatantly Emily's pleading. So I just felt that, you know, because the mayor is the mayor, that he has to know people. He's the mayor. <laughs> you know, I just feel that way about it. And I, I would love to see somebody sort of step up and say, you know, I'm going to try and help you. The clerk suggests Emily try calling the Human Services Department or the Health Department or the Rotary Club. Emily tells him she has tried those things. She has also tried the town's high school, the local college, and her congressman, and gotten nowhere. During her 20 minutes with the clerks, it's hard to ignore her rising sense of panic about what will happen to Scott if volunteers don't come through. And the day comes that I'm not here, it would just be nice if people just knew who he was. Yeah. I don't want him to be a prisoner in his own house. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know what, also through our um, Office of Emergency Management, they have um, like an emergency phone chain and all, and if someone has special... A couple months after Emily knocked on doors and put up flyers, I checked in with her to see how things were going. Despite her efforts, not a single person had responded to her appeals in town. Your plan was sort of this two-pronged plan. One, get him the house, and two, get volunteers to sort of be the safety net underneath him. Obviously, the house part has worked out. Beautifully. How about the other part? The other part hasn't worked out. It's funny, I, I, I thought about that too, how I really had, I, I was all going to know that all of this would just fall into place and I got tired of asking is what happened. It wore me out. Um, I, I really didn't want to beg people. I figured the story was good enough, you know what I mean? And uh, Because you see it on television. You know, you do. You see them push the bus. Here's the bus. I said, I've never seen a bus. <laughs> I'm waiting for the bus to come. I don't, okay, well, I don't get the reference. Oh, you don't know that program on television? No. 
Emily explains she's talking about Extreme Makeover, Home Edition, the ABC reality show where tradespeople, aided by volunteers in the community, renovate the house of a family suffering from hardship, a family like Emily's. Every episode, the producers send the family on a week-long vacation, and when they return, a giant tour bus is hiding the spiffed-up house. And then they go, move the bus! Move the bus! And all the neighbors are there, and all the, you know, the whole neighborhood actually pitches in and helps. And it's like, wow, they did this for this family. Isn't this nice? I mean, it really would be beautiful because you you do get tired. But I can't walk away from it, and I can't just turn my back on it either. My producer Jonathan and I asked Emily why she thought the community wasn't responding the way she'd expected. Could it be that people were afraid of the responsibility of having someone rely on them? Or all the messy emotions that went along with that? She said she didn't think so. But then she started talking about how a while back, she and another teacher helped out a colleague, a 50-year-old woman dying of lung cancer. They drove her to doctor's appointments, hauled her in her oxygen tank to Broadway shows, and sat with her in her last days. And the, the hard part was I knew she was going to die. I, you know, that was difficult dealing with that and being with it. It took a lot out of me, very honestly. And I, um, would I do it again so readily? No. I did it, and I'm glad I did it, and she had a wonderful spirit. But, God, I can't give that much of myself. So It sounds like you do understand why people would be reluctant. I do. I do. I, I, absolutely, I absolutely understand because you put yourself in it emotionally, you know. So you're right about the fact that a lot of people, they're aware of that. I'm, you know, what if I get involved here and I don't want to be involved? And so there, there is that, you know, and people stay clear of it maybe for that reason. The reality is that Scott does need more than just an occasional pal. Nearly every night for years, he's gone to Emily, wanting to talk about pain from the past, like being taunted and rejected in high school. Why didn't people understand, he asks. Why am I autistic? See, I'm not happy about what I'm born with. I I claim that remark. And because I was born with, with autism, I usually have a lot of uh, fear and fright about life. Or Even today, I get... I get a little scared of people sometimes. It's that fear of socializing that sabotaged the one nibble of interest that Emily got. She had placed an ad on Craigslist, seeking a volunteer to work with a high-functioning autistic man. Only one person answered Emily's ad, a 62-year-old unemployed construction worker from the Philippines named Prue Dumlau. I was looking for a job. It's very hard to find a job. So I have to do something, uh, and then I saw him. I think this one's good. Prue called a lot at first, and his enthusiasm made Emily uneasy, suspicious even. She wondered why on earth a pure stranger would want to help out Scott. This was an odd turn of events. Here she was getting exactly what she'd wanted, and it creeped her out. Eventually, Emily realized Prue had no family here and was probably just lonely and bored. She ended up inviting him to hang out with Scott. Emily invited Prue to go to the town recreation center with Scott. By then, Prue had landed a full-time job, 
but he agreed to join Scott just the same. Scott drove Prue and me to the rec center, super cautiously. Prue sat in the passenger seat, looking totally at ease. Scott rambled on about fire and firefighters, and it was really nice the way Prue tried to engage him. He stuck with Scott. He didn't talk down to him. A fire chief can give you complete information. You, you know, met the fire chief here? Uh, there's a fire chief on... You, you, uh, you met him already? or? I think the fire chief is somewhere... Uh... At the rec center, Scott and Prue ended up at the air hockey table. Scott got totally into it. In fact, he was beaming. By then, Emily had arrived, too, and she was stunned. She had almost never seen him that happy. I got you good. I got you good. Prue and Scott kept laughing every time they scored. But 20 minutes after they arrived, smack in the midst of the action, Scott abruptly announced he wanted to go home and left. Emily and Prue haven't talked since that day at the rec center. The experience embarrassed Emily. Here she was, begging people to spend time with Scott, and then his autism interfered. It makes him afraid of spending too much time with people he doesn't know well. It's another roadblock, but for now, maybe it doesn't matter. Scott's been doing more and more on his own, and he's actually reaching out to neighbors for help, all without Emily. Just having the house has changed him, made him more confident, and even more sociable. A few weeks ago, when he was out raking leaves, he knocked on the door of his 84-year-old neighbor and offered to rake her yard, too. He asked another neighbor, a guy he barely knew, to help him haul a table, and the guy said, sure. He started to really rely on a man who lives across the street. A bunch of times, Scott's even sat on the guy's front steps late at night, chatting with him about real stuff, like Scott's frustrations. And the other day, when the guy heard Emily was going out of town for a few days, he offered to look in on Scott. Emily didn't even need to ask. It's not the bus, but it's a start. Ruth Padua writes for the New York Times Magazine. Hey! Well, your friends, they came from out of town. It was a new kind of neighborhood. And the neighbors said, but they didn't frown. New kind of neighborhood. New kind of neighborhood. Act two, baby steps. You know, sometimes you are the problem. You know, you are the event that everyone in your block, everyone on the street has to decide, are they going to say something to you? Are they going to step in? This happened to Ryan Knighton. He became uh, the thing that everyone on the street had to react to uh, for reasons that will become clear enough. Ryan is uh, Canadian, and I only point that out because uh, in the course of his story, he uses the word nappy. This was originally written and produced for Canadian radio. I think I'll take Tess for a walk, I announced one morning. Tess is our four-month-old. This would be our first walk together. My wife Tracy paused. Oh, she said. Uh, okay. I've already got the baby uh, chest sack carrier thing, I said, if you can put her sweater on or whatever. You, uh, you sure? Tracy asked. I was already busy putting the harness on inside out. Yep, we'll be fine. I'll go with you then, Tracy said. She sounded extra cheerful, persuasive. I couldn't angle a kind way to say, but I don't want you to walk with us. For once... I want to take Tess for a walk by myself. So instead, I said, 
Look, you never get any time alone. Tracy didn't need reminding. In four months, she'd never been further than the shower without Tess either in her arms or in sight. She hadn't much in the way of alternatives either. I'm her husband, but I'm also blind. And people are naturally wary of leaving me in charge of a baby. Even my own. Though I've been blind for ten years now, I'm still not very good at it. I lost my sight slowly, over a fifteen-year stretch. A slow and painless deterioration of my retinas caused by a genetic misfire with a long name. While I've adapted to much over time... Four months with a baby is a slender window in which to perfect my new dad skills. Just imagine changing a nappy in the dark. What was once a diaper is now psychedelic origami. Today my plan was to strap on our child for a walk through city traffic. You can understand Tracy's reluctance. It's just a little walk, I said. We'll be fine. You have the baby carrier on upside down, she said, surrendering. A few minutes later, I descended our front stoop with Tess. I have never been more petrified as a blind pedestrian. Tess was harnessed to my belly, and the weight of her there, that new presence against my chest and stomach, brought other sensations to the surface. I could feel memories of mushing my gut into any number of undetected obstacles. Into poles, bicycles, parking meters, chain-link fences, you name it. I stepped cautiously deliberately, as if carrying a sack of sweaty dynamite. I swept my cane with the care of a mine detector. Twenty minutes later, we'd only made it to the corner. We live two doors down from the corner. The first person to pass us saw the situation in simpler terms. Jesus, that's got to be tricky, she said as she passed. Maybe she said it to me, or maybe to a person she was walking with. Or maybe, as her phrasing suggested, to her pal Jesus. Already, strangers were praying for our survival. Within the next block, and the next 20 minutes of slow-going movement, at least a half a dozen others offered similar prayers, or insisted on guiding us, or asked to take us home, or asked if we'd lost mommy. Slowly, we edged around the corner at Grant Street and left the residential sidewalks for commercial drive. More people meant more noise to govern by. A good thing. The sound of traffic stretched into the distance, so at least I had something pointing me in the right direction. The help of crowds has a backhand, though. Busy people pay less attention to their surroundings. Folks regularly clip my shoulders, and I've been caught off balance and knocked down before. Here, they might even slam us head-on or smush a slice of hot, cheap pizza into Tess's face. And there would be dogs, too. Usually it's pit bulls around here, pit bulls leashed to bike racks or snoozing in front of doorways, as you'd find them in their native habitat, by the gates of Hades. Too often I've whacked my cane against a dog where no dog should be, and too many times large, toothy shadows have snapped at my legs. Tess could become a chew toy. I waved my free hand in front of us, braced my arm, and pushed ahead the way running backs rush into a dog pile, but really, really slowly. Within ten steps, somebody clipped my shoulder. As I rebounded, it happened again, 
this time sending me off course towards a garbage can. A woman caught up with us. She'd retrieved Tess's baby sunglasses that had fallen to the sidewalk a while back. Here, she said. You let the baby drop these. Thanks, I said. You should be careful, she said. Telling a blind person he should be careful is like telling him to look out. It's not a question of should, but how. I thanked her again and tried to fit the glasses back onto Tess's face. Mostly, though, I just poked at her chubby cheeks with the arms. We shuffled on. Soon, I recognized a voice at a sidewalk cafe table. The voice belonged to Joe, an older Italian man who continues to be, as best I can determine, shackled to my preferred coffee shop. My God, he said as we approached, you got a little baby. He was up and at us in seconds, pinching Tess's cheeks. This was a man who looked past my blindness and her vulnerability. He simply drank in the baby and her babiness. It was refreshing. I'm telling you, Joe said, coming up for breath. This is a hell of a beautiful baby. She likes me, I can tell. He tickled the baby some more. And look, Joe went on. She's got a little sunglasses on and, uh... Suddenly, all the espresso-fueled joy drained from his body. The glasses. My God, no, he said, his voice low and serious. She don't see. My God, she don't see like you. It took a few minutes to convince him that everything was fine. He found it hard to believe that babies might wear sunglasses for comfort. As we rounded the corner at Gravely Street, stepping past the pub and local U-Brew, a mere 30 yards from home plate, I heard the ridiculous girth of an SUV shoot out from a building's underground parking lot. The weight of its supersized engineering and Freudian neurosis blew across the sidewalk in front of us. Close enough, in fact, to bat the cane from my hand and into the street. My heart stopped. I didn't know if Tess had been clipped. Everything happened so fast. She sucked wind, readying a hail of tears and a permanent distrust of her father's guidance. Nothing came, though. And still nothing came. So I knew she was shaping that worst cry. The deep, silent, open-mouthed cry. The one that can't find any voice in the beginning. I braced myself, and then it arrived. She violently shook and kicked and squealed with laughter. Out of her came a glee powerful enough to start my heart again, a laugh like I've never heard before. Meanwhile, the driver had stopped. He fetched my cane. Had I been one step closer home, when the SUV had left the lot, my spine would have resembled what now remained of my cane. Sorry there, the driver said and handed me my new boomerang. Didn't see you coming. Cute baby. Before I knew what to say or remembered how to yell, he was back inside his tank, putting it in hyperdrive. You should be careful, he said from out the window, and sped away. Dr. Daniel Byrne, reading a true story by Ryan Knighton. An excerpt from uh, Knighton's book, Come On, Papa, Dispatches from a Dad in the Dark. This story originally aired on the CBC radio program Wiretap 
which is hosted by Jonathan Goldstein and distributed in the United States by PRI, Public Radio International. Coming up, what to do when your neighborhood watch is low-rent wise guys. We have practical, practical tips. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, Neighborhood Watch. Stories of people deciding if they're going to look out for their neighbors or not. And now we have arrived at Act uh, 3 of our show. Act 3, Witness for the Persecution. A surprising amount of uh, Debbie Logan's workday involves dogs. I'm being asked if you want the dog to be intermittently barking in the interview or not. <laughs> we have a dog in the office. Debbie spoke to me from her office. She's a building manager for a development of apartments and townhouses in Nashua, New Hampshire, called Twin Ponds. 364 units. And in those 364 units, at least 250 dogs, she says. Since they started advertising their dog friendliness about a year ago, business has been unstoppable. We have no way to breed restrictions. We have one small dog playground on our property. We're in the process of building a large one. And that's why a lot of people come to us and why our occupancy uh, rate is so high is 99%, so... Wow. (laughs) People love their dogs. Take that, economic recession. But of course there's a problem that goes with having lots of dogs around, and that's human beings who don't pick up after their dogs. You see this pretty much everywhere in the world where there's large numbers of people and dogs living together. And here at Twin Ponds, there's a woodsy area, a little brook, and of course two ponds. Lots of potential places for wayward, hidden poo. There was a lot of problems, but it was impossible to find out who they were. They were very sneaky, and they would go out at night or around a corner when nobody's looking. And um, the, the bigger problem was that it was showing up in grassy areas where kids are meant to play. And Oh. I know. And around the ponds when people are going over there to enjoy the fishing. And, and one of the biggest things was... Uh, I'd get a call that said, well, I can't prove it, but I swear it's so-and-so and and whatever unit number. Well, I can't do anything with that. She tried a neighborhood watch kind of approach to the problem for a while. Put the residents on the lookout. We did offer to pay people if they could show us a video of another offender. It only worked for a very short amount of time, and we found out very quickly that people aren't comfortable doing that. Wait, it it worked for a brief amount of time? How many people shot videos of their neighbor's uh, it was a while ago. I would say I maybe had, let's go with half a dozen. Half a dozen? And most of those videos, I couldn't even tell who the person was anyway. It, <laughs> it just wasn't working. And, and the more we thought about that, that wasn't the right way to do things. And So Debbie began researching. She spent four or five months looking for some alternative, looking at what cities do and what dog parks do to get people to pick up after their dogs. And what she found was that nobody seemed to be doing much at all. She could put in video cameras everywhere, and that would cost a fortune. She didn't want to have to pass that cost on to her tenants. And finally, poking around on Google, she found a service called Poo Prints, which would DNA test all the dogs in her buildings and compare that DNA to DNA found in any errant poo. Watson and Crick, when they discovered the double helix in a strand of DNA, Crick supposedly announced, we have found the secret of life. Now Poo Prints was using that to keep the sidewalk clean. And I happened to come across it finally, and, and initially I thought that it was um, a little on the crazy side <laughs> to DNA dogs. Really? Why, why did it seem crazy? Doesn't it sound crazy? 
Yeah, it actually does sound crazy. Well, it just seems like it just seems like really things have come to this that we're, that that's what we're going to do. And it's working. It's working, though it took some effort. First step, Debbie had to get samples of all the DNA of all the dogs in all of her buildings. She had the owners bring the dogs to her office. They swabbed the inside of each dog's cheek with a Q-tip, paid 30 bucks to cover the cost, and sent it to the lab. Which you would think would be simple, except that they're dogs. You have to schedule them one at a time. You don't want the risk of you're doing a dog DNA in the office and you have someone else coming in, and if those dogs greet each other, then that's it. You have to reschedule that appointment. You mean because, so the, basic, you mean because the dogs lick each other? That's the They're problem. swapping DNA. That's right. <laughs> so, so we only do an appointment every hour. And we stayed open late and weekends. So one of the funnest, the, the things that I love the most right now, of course, is if somebody calls us and, you know, they've uh, uh, found a pile, quote unquote, on the property. We send a maintenance guy off and we have a collection kit. And it's, you know, we play a little CSI out there and we get our sample, send it in. And Trisha and says the poor maintenance guy who has to get a dab of poo and then mix it with a special solution and FedEx that sample to the lab in Knoxville. Not much fun for him. But just how exciting does Debbie find it? She finds it so exciting that she has a music cue, a music cue on the ready on her computer. So pretty much uh, when I know there's a sample to be picked up, cue up the music and crank it. And when one of my maintenance guys is walking through the door, he knows exactly what he'll be doing when he hears this. Well, I don't think we have as much excitement as Deb does on our end, but... uh... And does your poo technician, does he get excited when he actually gets samples to test? No. (laughs) That's another day at the lab. This is Jim Simpson, the president of the company that does the DNA testing called Biopet. Biopet was the kind of company that ran blood tests for veterinarians. Then a few years ago, they realized that since the dog genome had been mapped, there must be a way to make money selling DNA testing of some kind to dog owners. So they started doing doggy paternity tests. Yes, there's a market for that. Also, they sell a test that tells you pretty inexpensively exactly what breeds make up your dog, though other companies offer those services as well. But then somebody at Biopec read about a town in Israel that had a huge problem with dog waste and that hoped to solve it with DNA testing of dogs. And they wondered if it would be possible to get a DNA sample from dog poo and ship it to a lab in usable form. It's turned out to be kind of a tricky thing to figure out. Bacteria grows in the poo sample if you don't do it right. But finally, about two months ago, they had it down. They started to market the product, Poo Prints, in earnest. Only six places have bought it so far, which is why the company president knows Debbie by name. She is his biggest customer for Poo Prints. But Jim Simpson thinks the potential is huge. We think it's worldwide. We think it's, you know, we've got uh, representatives uh, all over the world that are, that are starting to push the product and then they are getting interest. So, mm-hmm. But we think it's going to be a material part of our business. Uh, you know, at, at the end of one year. So, now I would think that another problem in terms of just getting getting this product out is th- is that there are lots of places uh, where, where there might be you know dog waste in front of a building, but it's in a city or it's on a street where all kinds of dogs come by who don't live in that building, and so testing all the dogs in that building isn't going to help you. That's correct. Yeah, it it definitely has to be a defined area. Most apartment complexes are a gated type community. And they have a defined area for the dogs to to uh, go to the restroom, so it seems to work quite well. Um, we do have some small islands um, that are looking at the, the program as well. 
That's right, he said islands, specifically on the island of Cyprus, in the Mediterranean, the town of Limassol. An environmental health official inquired about bringing in poo prints to solve their poo problem. Meanwhile, an executive in Copenhagen wrote that perhaps they could collaborate with Biopet and offered to help with politics to institute mandatory adoption of poo prints either all through Denmark or at least in its biggest cities. Though it has to be said that when people start debating mandatory DNA dog testing, they don't always end up choosing it. I think what ended up happening in our building was, um, you know, people kind of fell into camps. Richard Hopp is a resident of the Scarlet Place condominiums in Baltimore, a fancy address near the water at the Inner Harbor. And this spring, a rash of doggy droppings in the hallways, and supposedly even in the elevators of their high-end building, led the condo board to consider DNA testing and $500 fines for violators. Richard tipped off a reporter for the Baltimore Sun. He was squarely against the testing. He says that two puppies were being house-trained in the building at the same time, and that might have been a lot of the problem. What was the big deal, he asked. Why start complicated new rules? You know, what happened at the very beginning was the board had come up with a set of rules on how, you know, what the fines would be and, you know, Mm -hmm. that guest dogs, you know, in order to bring a guest dog into the building, they'd have to be DNA tested. And and the people at the front door were supposed to check every dog that came in the lobby to see if they had a tag. This very elaborate set of rules. You know, everybody was just kind of laughing about it. And I thought it was just funny. So, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, you know, for, you know, first of all, how do you know that you have every dog in the building tested? My, at least my little dogs don't have photo ID. So how is anyone going to know if I show up to have my dog tested that it's really, you know, Sparky? Who, who, who would know? Wait a second. You're saying that people, members of the building, would actually try to evade the rules by bringing in a random dog for the dog test? That's what you're saying? Well, I don't know what would happen, but if you consider the kind of person you're dealing with is the sort of person who would watch their dog make a number two in, 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 in the hallway inside the building and not do anything about it. So yeah. if you're dealing with that kind of a person to begin with, mm-hmm. then you know, who knows what they're going to do. And it just seems so silly to try and get... Uh, you know, a cheek swab from my little dog. I mean, my dog doesn't even have a snout, so I'm not even sure that he really even has a cheek. But I don't even know how you... <laughs> you know, he's not going to cooperate. And I just the whole thing just seems so overly complicated and, and, and overly expensive. I don't know. It's a Q-tip that you put into his mouth and then you pull it out. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't so. seem so hard. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I've never tried. Yeah. And I suppose it's possible, but I mean, it seemed like there was a, an easier solution, which is either... Just, you know, look at the closed-circuit cameras. Are there closed-circuit cameras in the hallways? Yes. Or deal with it on a neighborly basis. You know, it's a condominium building. I know, for instance, on my floor that there are four other dogs. And if there was a mess, I would be able to pretty well identify where it came from. And you just, you know, you talk to people uh, in a neighborly way rather than, you know, trying to use this technological uh, advancement. The article in the Sun Papers got picked up everywhere, all over the country. There were TV stories, and this was not good for the building, Richard says. Board members who had supported the DNA testing, he says, were made to feel ridiculous. The DNA idea was dropped. And the simple threat of action was enough to make the poo problem vanish, too. Um, you know, if there's still hurt feelings in the building. Um, there's uh, you know, two board members who won't even acknowledge me at this point. If our paths cross in the lobby. Yeah, they were very upset by it. The 
The apartment buildings up in Nashua, New Hampshire are a very different situation. Lots more dogs. All the illegal poo was outside, where there were no closed-circuit TV cameras. And Debbie Logan says that the simple threat of DNA testing has had a huge effect. I would say it only took about a month's time to see a dramatic difference once we started going, once the word started getting out there that we were doing this. The property has cleaned up 100, you know, not 100%, 99%. Now, since you've started this, how many times have you had uh, violations that you had to investigate? Um, We have actually fined six pet owners. And believe it it or not, one of the person, uh, the people, was a uh, two-time offender, (laughs) which is mind-boggling. It's a pretty steep fine when when we catch you. What's the fine? $100. What did the person say the second time? Uh, The pet owner informed me that... They believed they were having problems with another tenant, and they thought it was a conspiracy and that it was uh, set up. It was staged. <laughs> and, and did they lay out exactly how that would go, that somebody would abduct their dog, squeeze poo out of it, and then, and then <laughs> plant it? Like, did they, did, they, did they lay out a whole scenario? Um, actually, the scenario was that they knew where they disposed of their uh, dog droppings and that they must have collected the middle, in the middle of the night and then uh, set it up on the property elsewhere, da-da-da. It was hilarious. In the last two decades, DNA evidence introduced an element of certainty to our criminal justice system. Wrongly convicted men were sprung from prison. There was a clarity where things had been cloudy and ambiguous. And Debbie says that it's the certainty that's the most novel thing about doggy DNA testing. And it comes at such a cheap price and removes her from the he-said-she-said world of tenant disputes that's the bane of a property manager's existence. It's her favorite thing about the doggy DNA program, the certainty. If people don't pay their $100 fines within a month, Debbie says that she'll start the eviction process. She's not getting around. She runs a tight ship. But it hasn't come to that yet. Act four. There go the neighborhoods. Sometimes a neighborhood watch is targeted at watching just one person. That happened to Jim O'Grady, and he was not happy about it at the time. He told the story of it on stage at the Moth. Um, just a note before we start, we beep out an occasional curse word in this story, uh, and also we beep out the name of Jim's nemesis, or at least his nemesis for the purposes of this story. Here's Jim O'Grady. It's the mid-'90s, and I'm living in a beach bungalow, and I look out the window one day, and I see three large men in black suits and shades standing in front of a Lincoln Town car doing this. And I know right away that they're to do one of three things. Beat me up, kill me, or more likely make me think that they're there to beat me up or kill me. So I flash back right away to the week before where I had bumped into in the local diner and, and seeing me had reminded him that the day before, I had been on the local news insulting him. So he raised his, like, slicked head from his steak and eggs, and he said to me, you should remember that I can have you taken care of. And there was something in the way he said taken care of that I knew he didn't mean it tenderly. <laughs> So I'm living at the time, 
beautiful place, tree-lined lanes. My neighbors are, are retirees and railroad workers and, and immigrants. The problem is we're all in court fighting about whether the residents should stay or go. We're fighting for our homes. The other problem is that I am very poor at risk assessment. <laughs> so it's my name on the op-ed calling greedy, and it is my face on TV calling him an aesthetic cretin. I was very proud of that phrase. Um, and that's how come three men are standing outside my window. And I try to work. I go, I'm a writer, I go back. But I'm going back and forth to the window, looking out over, over hours. And as I'm doing this, I think three things. Two things. I have a simple thought process. One, being a wise guy is boring. <laughs> the whole time they're standing there listening to the bird chirp, and um, checking out their man manicures. And the other thing I think is about a guy I'd read about named Clarence Jordan, a white man who had founded an interracial farming commune in rural Georgia in 1942. And this got the attention of the local Ku Klux Klan. So every now and then, at night, they would come by, shoot a shotgun, throw a firebomb, at the houses. So Clarence had a problem. But Clarence was a disciple of nonviolence. So he did one thing that you do, is you try to find some mundane human activity that you share with your enemy and use it to make them see you as a person. So one day he's at the local post office and he sees some clan guys and he goes over and he says, hey fellas, are you married? And they go, yeah. And he says, children, do you have children? They go, sure. And he says, well, you know how when a, a baby wakes in the night and it's fussing and you just can't get it to go back to sleep and you're up till dawn and they say, oh, yeah, God. And he said, well, when you shoot at us, <laughs> it wakes the babies. And we have a hard time getting them to go back to sleep. So I take that thought and I combine it with my complete lack of common sense. <laughs> and instead of calling the cops, I go out my front door and I go up to the three guys and I say to the big guy in the middle, I say, you've been out here for a while now. You need the bathroom? <laughs> Nobody moves a muscle. And the big guy says, Nah, we're good. <laughs> and I think, Clarence Jordan, what am I, now what? And I said, Well, uh, you hungry? And the, this is a quote, this is an exact quote from the big guy. He says, Well, to be honest with you, I would not say no to a bowl of lentil soup. And, and that's how it starts, you know, like 20 minutes later, we're four of us around my little kitchen table. And, and it turns out they're not even mobsters. 
They're unemployed construction workers. They've taken this job from because they're hoping he'll hire them to build the McMansions once he kicks us off the land and raises our houses. So it's not, the soup is not enough to get them on my side, but it's enough that they tell me is a prick who pays them next to nothing and made them get man manicures because he thought it would make them threatening. So, the end of the story is, we, we, made it, we came up with a system for the afternoons when it got really tedious for these guys. One of them would take the car to the end of the lane and be the lookout. The other two would like hang on my couch, watch my TV, take a nap. And I, I was writing a book. I, I kind of liked their company. <laughs> and this went on for like four or five days until the was satisfied that I'd been terrified enough. And, you know, I'm not going to exaggerate and say that me and these guys became friends, because we didn't. But I do, I really do, I do think, maybe, maybe I'm, I don't know. I think that if after, here's what I think. <laughs> we did share some mundane human activities. And I think that if after that first day, after the soup had asked them to harm me, I think they would have told him to take his six bucks an hour and shove it up his Jim O'Grady, his co-author of the biography Disarmed and Dangerous, The Radical Lives and Times of Daniel and Philip Berrigan. It was recorded at The Moth, which features personal stories told live in front of an audience. For more Moth stories, you can listen to The Moth Radio Hour from PRX, there's a public radio stations across the country where you can check out The Moth's free weekly podcast at themoth.org. Produced today by Lisa Pollack with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Jane Feltis, Sarah Kandig, Jonathan Menhivar, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Senior producer for our show is Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Production up from Sean Wynn. Special thanks today to Jill Rosen, Joanna Kakissis, Ted McDermott, Steve Zimmer, David Folkenflick, Clayton Cook, Alyssa Furstenfeld, Paul Soptic, WLRN's Alyssa Zuckerman. Wanted to record the postman Paul as he delivered mail at the top of our show. Ryan Knighton's story in Act One was produced by Jonathan Goldstein and Mira Burt-Wintonic and Crystal Duhame for CBC's Wiretap. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ management oversight for our show by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. All I have to say is, look out, Richard Daly, or dare I say, Rahm Emanuel. Tori is looking for somebody to see the new Harry Potter with him. I just felt that, you know, because the mayor is the mayor, that he has to know people. He's the mayor. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life.
Public Radio International.